Hey everyone, welcome to a very special bonus episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Today I'm going to talk to you about dinner parties. Um, I am famous for throwing lots and lots of dinner parties. Of course, I threw most of them before the pandemic started, so it's been a while. But this past weekend, I made a dinner for three of my friends who had birthdays. They're all Virgos. Um, It was my friend Ryan's birthday, my friend Harry's birthday, and my friend Jay's birthday. And I cooked up a feast on Saturday, and I posted a lot of pictures from it, and lots of people sent me little fire emoji thingies on Instagram. But, you know, I've always thought, like, maybe people would want to know or hear, like, how I think about a dinner party, how I walk myself through it, what the process is like, what the time frame is. And so if you're one of those people that wants to throw a dinner party, this is the episode for you. I'm calling it Anatomy of a Dinner Party. So let's start with where to begin. You know, where does the dinner party conception start? Well, it's usually with who's coming. And in this particular case, it started because my friend Ryan, we were celebrating his birthday and I told him I wanted to cook him a dinner. And then I separately saw my friend Harry and it was his birthday and I told him I wanted to cook him a dinner. And similarly, I saw my friend Jay and told him I wanted to cook him a dinner. And in my mind, I was like, wow, three separate birthday dinners. That's a lot. Why don't I combine these three things? And so I pitched it to all of them. They loved the idea. And the dinner party was born. So then the next question was what to make. And here is where I usually start with dessert. Because for a birthday dinner, I knew I wanted to make a cake. And Ryan, my good pal, loves coconut cake. And so for his previous birthday dinners, I'd made him luscious, lavish coconut cakes. But I, was, I get a little bored, though, making the same things over and over again. And I had a memory of a cake that I made a long time ago, maybe like in the early 2000s, called a hummingbird cake. And I forget where I got the recipe. I think I got it from Severe magazine, um, but it was essentially just a similar, like almost like a carrot cake, but instead of grated carrots, it had bananas, pineapple from a can, like crushed pineapple and toasted pecans. And then it had layers and layers of cream cheese frosting. And I just love the idea of doing something different. So I pitched the coconut cake to Ryan. He loved the idea. And the, thus the dinner was beginning to take shape. So I knew I was going to make a coconut cake. Sorry, I mean hummingbird cake. And because it was going to be such a rich dessert, I wanted to go do something a little bit lighter um, for the entree. Now, the other part of this, which I forgot, is that Ryan, when he mentioned, when we talked about this birthday dinner, um, was bemoaning the fact that his partner, Jonathan, who's a vegetarian, um, makes it so that anytime Ryan and Jonathan come over for dinner, I usually just make a vegetarian friendly entree. So if they're coming over, I'll make pasta, I'll make lasagna I'll make you know vegetarian chili or something but never really have I made like pork chops although the first time I had them over I did make pork chops this is a famous story which I've told on this podcast Uh, and I served a pork chop to Jonathan and he looked like he had like a bead of sweat trickling down his forehead and then I remembered he was a vegetarian so I made him a quick stir fry of beans and garlic which was great but anyway so in this particular birthday dinner Ryan requested a meat forward dinner because he never gets to have that and um and I sort of said well what's Jonathan going to eat and Ryan was like Jonathan can eat beforehand and I said well I'm not going to do that so here's what I figured out um I decided to do my famous probably my most famous dinner party dish which is my spicy spatchcock chicken with couscous salad and salsa verde I have made this for company many 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 times I've made it for 
famous, illustrious guests. I've made it for food writers who've come over. I've made it for our parents when they all came over once. There's just something about it that feels like the apotheosis of everything I love to cook because it's chicken, which is comforting, but it's kind of because I put spices on it, it kind of gives it a different angle, a different kind of zhuzh. And then with the couscous salad, I get to kind of play with the couscous each time and kind of put different things in it. And then the salsa verde brightens everything up. So my plan was for the entree, I would make my famous spicy spicy spatchcock chicken with couscous salad and salsa verde. And for Jonathan, I would get some cauliflower and sort of make a cauliflower steak that would go nicely also on top of the couscous and with the salsa verde. So really the only difference would be he wouldn't get the protein. He would just get a beautifully seared vegetable. So I had the dessert planned. I had the um, entree planned. And then I had dinner with my friend Ben, who's Jay's partner. And I was telling him I didn't know what to do for an appetizer. And he said, if we were cooking all that stuff, why don't you just get some cheese and meat and stuff and put it out, which is precisely what I did. I got some cheeses and some olives and just made it easy on myself as Ina says you only have to make two things and the third thing you can buy she usually buys dessert it seems on a lot of her episodes Um, but for me I love making I I usually shape a dinner party around the dessert first Um, the other ways I think about dinner parties are also about the seasons because here you know we're transitioning even though we're in LA we're transitioning out of summer although it's 98 degrees right now outside so I'm not sure how great this transition is going, um, but you know, with um, choosing what to make for a dinner party, I'm also thinking about okay, like is it height of summer still? I mean, if if this was a month ago or even like a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have insisted on featuring you know heirloom tomatoes, um, something like some kind of cobbler or pie for dessert, like a peach pie. Um, I probably would have wanted to do something with corn, but then since it was September, I was like ready to make that transition. And what I liked about the spatchcock chicken was that it is kind of a transitional dish because it still feels like something you could serve outside, you know, for a summer picnic, but it also feels like something that you could eat in cooler weather. So I was thinking about all these things when I was planning the birthday dinner. And so then the next step was the food shopping. You know, how do you go food shopping for a dinner like this? And normally, if I was doing more of the seasonal heirloom tomato-y, you know, heirloom, blah, 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 corn, fresh corn, basil, something summery, I would have insisted on going to the farmer's market or one of my favorite stores, which is called Cookbook in Echo Park, which basically shops at farmer's markets for you. So you, if you miss the market, you get to go there. And, um, and so I would go there normally and stock up on peaches and tomatoes. But because I was doing this transitional dinner, which was sort of an autumnal dinner, I just went to my local grocery store, which is Gelson's, um, which is very expensive. And so it's not great that I get everything from there. But if I'm in a time crunch, I'll go there. Um, So I went to Gelson's and it's important to point out that I went the day before the dinner because as you'll soon hear, um, part of planning this dinner was prepping some of it ahead. So on Friday morning, I went to Gelson's and the way I do it is on my phone, I have my notes app and then I basically write out the sequence of the dinner. So in bold and underlined in the notes app, I write, you know, cheese and meats and olives. So then I just no, okay, when I get to Gelson's, I've got to look for some cheese. I've got to get some probably, oh, I write down crackers because you have something to eat with the cheese. And then, you know, go to the olive bar, get some fancy green olives. And then the next thing I have on the list is, um, you know, the next course, which was the chicken, the um, salsa verde, and the couscous salad. So for the chicken, this is an important thing. I firmly believe in buying too much food. I think it's 
never a bad idea to have too much food at a dinner party. I think the worst thing you could have at a dinner party is not enough food. The thing about having too much food at a dinner party is it's like you're giving a gift to your guests, whether you're just giving them an abundance of things to eat at the table or you're sending them home with stuff. So for this particular dinner party for um, how many people? Eight people, because it was me and Craig, Ryan and Jonathan, um, Ben and Jay, and Harry and Chris, um, I bought what I bought three four pound chickens I know or like three and a half pound chickens um and I know that sounds like a lot but three chickens for eight people you know it wasn't that crazy and then also ensured that there'd be enough options because there's you know two legs per chicken two thighs per chicken two wings per chicken so that way there'd be I don't know math very well but at least like six times three is 18 so there'd be 18 pieces of dark meat for eight people to choose from and then a bunch of breast meat that if everybody didn't want breast meat or if they did they could have that and go home with it and you could turn it into sandwiches you could turn it into salads breast meat can do a lot of things so I got three chickens um and I tried to get Jadori chickens at Gelson's because that's what they serve at restaurants they're a little more expensive but presumably they're better quality chickens so I got those and then um for the salsa verde I went into the produce aisle I got grabbed a bunch of parsley I got a bunch of garlic lemons it's always a good idea before a dinner party just buy a bunch of garlic get a bunch of fresh lemons like bright yellow lemons because you might want them for a cocktail you might want to squeeze some on the chicken just I think it's good to have that um and then for the couscous I bought three boxes of plain couscous and then I happened to have some some stuff at home that I knew I was going to put into it um, but if I didn't I probably would have bought scallions I probably would have bought radishes basically the couscous is a base and you're going to dress it up however you feel which is one of the things I like about the couscous salad um, with my famous spicy spatchcock dinner um, and what else oh and then the hummingbird cake ingredients so that was the most specific because I was following a recipe I believe I was just doing the Sever one again no no I'm sorry I did a New York Times one um, and that one, uh, if you just Google New York Times hummingbird cake, I'm blanking on the author's name, even though she has a new book out and I just asked her to come on my podcast, but I'm blanking. Um, so for that, you just literally write down the ingredients, just copy the ingredients from the recipe, put it into your notes app and then buy the flour. And I think something I have learned, and this is an important lesson is if you think you have confectioner's sugar at home and you need it for the cake, just buy it. Like if you forgot to check, just buy it. Cause I've had that happen before where you make a whole cake, you're ready to ice it. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. People are coming over at seven 30 and then you open the cabinet and you only have half a box of confectioner's sugar. And as it happened, funny enough, I only bought one box of confectioner sugar at the store. And this particular recipe for humming to, hummingbird cake requires two boxes. So it was a good thing I had one at home. Um, but always get too much. That's my philosophy. Um, and then once you've done the shopping, then it's time to go home, put everything away, and clean your kitchen. That is so important. I can't even imagine starting to cook for a huge dinner party without cleaning your kitchen first because you don't want to have that dispiriting pile of dishes in the sink when you're in the middle of cooking. It's just you got to clean as you go. It's so important. I know it's not fun and people are going to be, maybe be rolling their eyes, but that's what chefs do. That's what professional cooks do. It's just if you, if you want to make it if you want to be kind to yourself, just like immediately, if you dirty a, like a mixer making the cake, just throw it in the sink, run some water in it, just wipe it out, get it going. That's that's the only real way to do this, to do like a big ambitious dinner party for eight people is just to clean, clean, clean and blast your music, you know, listen to whatever you like to listen to. I listen to show tunes. I'm trying to think what I listened to that day. I listened to so many things. I feel like I listened to damn Yankees because I don't listen to that enough. Um, 
so then what else? Okay, so then prepping. So that Friday, when I got home from Gelson's, I put everything away. But the thing that I didn't put away were the chickens. Because when you buy meat for a dinner party, you, you're basically creating an opportunity, if you buy it ahead, to flavor it and season it ahead so that the salt and the spices penetrate the meat and give it that much more flavor. And really, all you have to do is the work that you would have done the next day, you're doing it a day ahead. So you're actually saving yourself time and you're improving the quality of the food. So for the chickens, it's pretty simple to spatchcock. I know it sounds fancy. You're basically just cutting the backbone out of your chicken. Um, And so I have a pair of poultry shears, just really sharp, heavy scissors, which everyone should have if you don't have that already. Just go on Amazon or wherever you buy cooking gear and get some poultry shears, and then in the sink with everything out of it, no, no glasses or dishes that can get get contaminated by chicken. I take the chickens out of the packaging. I don't wash them because as Jacques Pepin pointed out, if a 450 degree oven can't kill those germs, nothing will, which is a good point. And also if you're rinsing it off, you're kind of losing some flavor according to Jacques Pepin. So I don't wash it. I just um, cut out the backbone and not to be too gross, but we're dealing with raw meat here. So sometimes you'll see little bits of liver or other organs inside once you break it open. Um, and when I say break it open, what I mean is once you cut out that backbone, you'll be able to flatten the chicken. So you take it to cut out the backbone, set that aside, flip it back over. So the breast is up and the cut out back part is down and flatten it out, like open it up like a book, like a book that you put down upside down that's what the chicken will look like and then to just lean on it with your palms and crack that backbone or even just use your hands and crack it because you want to be you want the chicken to be able to lie flat and then flip it back over and you got to do some examining I like to look in there if there's pieces of liver or just things that didn't get cleaned out I like to pull those out and then also sometimes and this is a peculiar thing I do but if there's ribs like kind of sharp ribs poking out I take my Uh, poultry shears and I cut the ribs off a little bit just to make it a smooth surface in case anyone's going to grab that piece and bite into it and a little pointy rib goes in their mouth I don't want them to have a horrible night so I do that and then the other thing I do is I pat them very very dry with paper towels that's so important because you don't want like gooey slimy chicken going into your fridge Um, you want to you want to start patting it dry um, and also it's going to help it crisp up later so Here's my secret formula for my spicy spatchcock chicken. And this is something I've been doing for years and years and years, and it never fails me, which is I take a skillet, and in the skillet, I pour, let's say, about, I don't want to say half a cup. That's too much. Let's just say, for our purposes here, a third of a cup to a half a cup of coriander seeds in a small metal skillet. So it's a third of a cup of coriander seeds, a third of a cup of fennel seeds, and then maybe like a tablespoon or two of black peppercorns. But truthfully, I just eyeball it. And what I'm looking for when I eyeball it is I'm looking at those seasonings and I'm thinking to myself, okay, like how much do I need to cover those three chickens? So, you know, you, it's it's not possible to toast too many spices because whatever you spice, whatever you toast and grind up and don't use, you can save for a pork chop or something else. So I say err on the side of toasting too much. But anyway, you put your spices in the skillet, crank up the heat, start tossing it around. And if you don't, you don't know how to, if you don't know how to do that fancy chef thing where you, like you toss it in the air, which is a great thing to practice and learn because it looks really cool, just use a spoon and stir the spices around in your dry skillet 
toilet on high heat until you start smelling them or until you start to hear them crackle. You don't want to burn them. So as soon as you smell them, it should be like about a minute or two. And if you're if you're brave and don't worry about burn, if you're not worried about burning yourself, you could also like make a fist and put your knuckles a little bit on the spices to see if they're hot and warm. And if they're warm and toasty, you did a good job. So then I take them immediately once they're hot and toasty and fragrant and not burned. I pour them into a bowl to cool off. And while they're cooling off, I get another bowl and I pour in diamond crystal kosher salt. Now, when I say pour in, I probably pour in about at least half a cup of salt. Now, I don't use all this salt, but the reason I pour it into this little bowl is because I'm about to touch chickens and I'm about to touch salt. So this way, this bowl can get washed and clean later and I don't have to worry about contaminating anything else. So into that bowl, I put the salt and then I then basically I arrange the chickens. Now, normally if I'm doing one chicken or two chickens, and I would say two chickens is what I normally do for a dinner party, but this was eight people as mentioned. So if, I'm do, if I was doing two chickens, I would get a wire rack and put it over a cookie sheet that I've lined with foil and that just makes cleanup a lot easier. And then I would just lay the chickens on the wire rack and I start them um, backside up. So the basically the side that is unfolded like a book that has all the guts and the ribs that side up. I sprinkle all over with salt. And you've probably seen this on Top Chef where like a chef sprinkles something from high up with salt. So you basically want to rain down the salt on the chicken. And it might seem like a lot, but it, you have to keep in mind that this is salt that's penetrating the meat. And so you want you want the salt to get inside. And I don't know, I've never I've literally been cooking for 15 years and making chicken for tons of people. And I have never ever had anybody say this chicken is too salty. So just take that if you will, as my little nudge to salt your chicken. But I'm not saying like pack the salt on. I'm just saying rain the salt over it and then do the same on the other side, on the breast side. Um, Rain it all over with salt. And then when your spices have cooled, put them in a clean coffee grinder, one that you've set aside for spices because once you grind spices in there, you're not going to want to make coffee with it. Um, So a little at a time, you know, you want your spices to be cool and then a little at a time. You don't want to overcrowd your coffee grinder, but put in about like a couple tablespoons, grind them coarsely. So just like zap it, zap it and grind it. And so you want it to look a little bit like, you know, as if you did it in a mortar and pestle, which you could also do. And then basically once you've ground up all your spices, put them back in the bowl and then do exactly the same thing with the spices that you just did with the salt, which is that flip the chickens so that the breast side is down, rain down all the spices and you actually can use your hands and like rub in the spices and then flip them upside down so the breast side is up and then sprinkle on all the spices. And if, if it doesn't seem like it's getting everywhere, use your fingers, And basically, that's it. Then just wash your hands. And here's the controversial part. But it's something very chef-y and very real, which is that um, I then put it in the refrigerator, not with any foil over it, not with any plastic wrap over it. I just literally put that whole cookie sheet with the wire rack and the two chickens and all the spices in the open refrigerator um, to marinate, dry marinate overnight. Um, and the reason I do it uncovered is so that the skin dries out even further to make it more crispy when I cook it. Now, if you have little kids in the house and you think they're going to open the fridge and start like rubbing their hands all over the chicken and putting it in their mouth, then I would say, don't do that. Just tent it with foil and what happens happens. But for most people who don't have kids or are not worried about that kind of thing, I think it's totally fine to do this. I'm still alive. And I did this the other day. At least I think I'm still alive. I don't know. Um, okay. So, so that's all the prep you do the Friday and the night before. And again, you're doing yourself a huge favor because you are now 
basically one dish down in terms of all the things you have to make for the dinner party. So then clean, 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 get everything set up, I mean cleaned up, and then have whatever you're going to have for dinner. I don't recommend cooking the night before a dinner party. Um, You might want to just go out or order in um, because you don't want to have to clean up those dishes too. But then the next morning is the morning of, you know, getting to work. And I have to say that the older I get and the more that I cook, I mean, I'm sorry, the more that I work during the week and do writing and just sit behind a computer all day, I really, really enjoy these Saturday dinner party days where I get to just cook all day. I, I mean, if you if you can get to a place in your mind where you're relishing the chance to just be in a kitchen and get to play with things and sear things and have smells and fragrances and I guess that's the same thing. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. Just like blasting your music, getting your hands wet, just physically being in there. If you if you're excited to do that, I think it makes such a huge difference when cooking for a dinner party. So that morning, um, well, the first thing I do when I'm making a dinner party is in the morning, I usually make the dessert. So I'll have a little breakfast with Craig. Like I've been doing a lot of overnight oats lately. So we'll have some of those or yogurt and granola. And maybe I'll have my coffee and maybe I'll read a magazine. But then around like 10 o'clock or 10.30, I start the dessert. So because I was making a hummingbird cake, this dessert actually needed to be made in the morning to, or get started because I had to let the cakes cool before I iced them. So the hummingbird cake recipe is pretty straightforward. You basically just whisk together a bunch of dry ingredients, whisk together a bunch of wet ingredients, including eggs and, and vegetable oil and vanilla, and then you fold those two together and then you add the pineapple and the bananas. I guess the bananas are in the wet ingredients and then the toasted pecans, and then you put it in cake pans. Now, this recipe did not say to line your cake pans, but again, like if you've been cooking for a long time, you make enough mistakes, you'll never make those mistakes again. So for me, I was a little nervous to cook three layers of cake in an unlined cake pan with the risk that it would tear when it was coming out. So call me neurotic, call me the anal retentive chef, which is a great Phil Hartman sketch if you've never seen it, go on YouTube. Um, But I felt the need to line my pans. So I just basically sprayed the three cake pans with Pam and then I did that cool thing. If you've never done it, it's really fun. It's where you line a cake pan by tearing off a square of parchment paper folding it in a triangle, folding it again in a triangle, folding it again until it looks like a pointer, and then laying the pointer so the tip is at the center, and then the outside is um, basically at the perimeter of the pan, and then you cut it. There's probably YouTube tutorials that will tell you what I'm talking about. So just Google how to line a cake pan with parchment paper, and you'll see this. But it basically makes a circle. So... I sprayed the cake pans. I put the circle of parchment down, which, by the way, I'm sure you could also buy circles of parchment if you don't want to do the little fancy folding triangle thing. And then I sprayed the um, inside of the pan again with the parchment in there, and then I floured it. And I have no regrets about this because later, spoiler alert, when I took the cakes out of the oven, they came right out of the pan. So I recommend always lining your cake pans. You don't want to have a dessert catastrophe right out of the gate. So I baked those cakes basically. I let them set them aside to cool. And then honestly, I chilled out for a long time because it was, you know, what time was it? Like 1130 when I finished the cakes. Um, I actually made eggs that day. I remember like even though I don't recommend cooking dinner the night before your dinner party, I had like so much free time because I'd already prepped the chickens and I'd already made the cakes that I was like, okay, well, let's save some money. I'll make some eggs. So I cooked some onions. I added some bacon and I added some eggs and cooked it all up and we had it with toast and it was very nice. And then I cleaned all that up. I still clean everything up. Don't forget, clean everything up, clean up the cake, clean up the eggs, 
got to do it. And then I would say around, I want to say around like three o'clock, I got a little nervous because my plan was to ice the cake, then make the couscous, then um, make the salsa verde, set the table, make the cheese plate, and then put the chicken in the oven. That was my plan. But I suddenly realized I didn't really have room in the fridge to put the cake once I iced it with the cream cheese frosting, which is when I turned to Twitter. And if you're not on Twitter, good for you because it's a hellscape of horrible (laughs) interactions and I kind of hate it and it makes me crazy. But one really great thing about Twitter is that you can ask a cooking question if you have some followers and um, or you could even ask somebody that you follow a cooking question and they'll answer it. And so I just tweeted out can I make a cream cheese frosting and ice a cake with it and leave it at room temperature for a couple of hours for a dinner party? And almost unanimously, people said, yes, you could absolutely do that. The sugar acts as a preservative as long as the room's not too hot. Um, It'll be fine. So that was what I needed to do psychologically before I got to a place of being able to proceed with the cake. But once I did that, my next step was to ice the cake. So how do you ice a cake? Well, This is sort of a sidebar because, you know, this episode is the anatomy of a dinner party. It's not how to ice a cake. So all I'll say is I made the frosting, um, which had two packets of cream cheese, two sticks of butter, and two boxes of powdered sugar. And it was luscious and wonderful and creamy and decadent. And again, when you're doing a dinner party, I've always, this is one of my other rants. You don't want to serve diet food at a dinner party. That would be the most depressing thing anybody could possibly do to anybody else. In fact, I think that's sort of a hate crime to serve somebody diet food. If you're on a diet, that's great. If you're doing Whole30, congratulations. If you're doing keto, mazel tov. But as, I, as far as I'm concerned, that does not belong at the dinner table when you have other people coming over. It's, it's rude. I consider that very rude. So when you're shocked and appalled at the fact that I put all that cream cheese and butter in my icing, you don't understand my philosophy then of dinner parties because that, my friends, is what makes a dinner party great and memorable is all the decadence, all the fat, all the sugar. You got to live it up. So icing a cake. Let me get back to it. Um, the most important thing when icing a cake is put little strips of parchment under the cake on the cake stand that you can pull off later because what's going to happen is once as you're icing globs of icing are going to come pouring down and they're going to land on the cake stand and if you don't have those pieces of parchment to pull away you're basically going to have to like wipe down your cake stand with a sponge and it's going to get the cake wet and it's going to be messy and sloppy so what I do is I take the bottom layer of the cake, put it on the cake stand on top of like a square, basically a big piece of parchment that I lay down, but I cut it into four or six pieces so that I could pull out each piece. If you do just one big square of parchment, you won't be able to pull it out. It would be like that magician trying to do that trick where like you yank the tablecloth and all the dishes stay on it. That's not fun. Don't I don't recommend that. So just put a little strips of parchment underneath the bottom layer of cake and... Um, Sorry, I'm having some technical difficulties. Oh, nope, I fixed it. Um, put the parchment strips under the cake, and then uh, you start icing the cake. So you basically put it so the top side of the cake is down, and you go ahead and ice it, spread it out. I watched a YouTube tutorial, actually, about how to ice a cake with cream cheese frosting, and it was a great tutorial because basically the tool that you want for icing a cake is an offset spatula, and that's not expensive. You can go on Amazon or go to Sur La Table and get one because it just sort of acts as sort of like a level that you basically glob on the... um, 
first layer of cream cheese frosting and instead of spreading it out with a knife or like a rubber spatula you hold the offset spatula on top of it rotate the cake stand and then basically let it let it spread out that way and then you do the next layer do the same thing and then you do, do the top layer with a lot more icing and then you kind of rotate press down rotate press down until it kind of starts to fall on the sides and then you kind of hold the offset spatula along the sides and smooth it out and then once it looks good and it took me a while to get there i have to admit i'm not the you know world's fanciest cake decorator but once it looks smooth and kind of rustic i kind of did some swirls then i yanked away the parchment and i thought it looked great and then just to give it a little zhuzh or a little extra flash, I put little pieces of pecans on top. Um, actually, the recipe, okay, I'm going to Google the recipe because it's bothering me that I'm not giving the um, recipe author credit for her recipe because it is um, a wonderful, wonderful recipe. Hummingbird cake, New York Times. Sorry, I know that you're, you're busy people. Um, but she, I was going to say, she recommends that you put on dried pineapple, Valerie Lomas, that's it, Valerie Lomas's cake. And Valerie Lomas has, is foodie in New York on Instagram. I'm trying to get her on my podcast and she has a brand new cookbook out called Life is What You Bake It. So there's a plug for Valerie Lomas. So in terms of her hummingbird cake, she recommends you put dried pineapple and edible flowers on top. But the dried pineapple that they had at Gelson's was too thick as far as I was concerned. It was kind of like that candied pineapple and that seemed too sweet to me. So I didn't do that. So I just put on some pecans like in a circle. You can see it on my Instagram at Amateur Gourmet if you don't already follow. And it came out gorgeous. It got a lot of likes on Instagram. Not to say that that's the measure of a good cake, but let's just say it did. Okay. So then time for the couscous. So about 4.35. Again, like I don't want to put food out or prep food too far ahead because obviously bacteria could grow on it. You don't want to be unsafe or unsanitary. So I think it was around like 4.30 or 5. I started making the couscous and I love making couscous for my fancy spicy spatchcock dinners because the couscous is again just a blank canvas. So I just took the three boxes and you could do this with chicken stock, but I had a vegetarian coming, so I didn't. And you just, I think it's like two cups of water for one box. So I did six cups of water, a big sprinkling of salt, a glug of olive oil. I brought it to a boil, dumped in the three boxes, turned off the heat, put the lid on, let it sit for a couple of minutes, and then the games began. So what did I put in my couscous this time? Well, on one of my last trips to cookbook, I bought a bunch of zucchini, a bunch of um, Jimmy Nardello peppers, and I had some onions. So here was my plan. Um, I decided to fry each of those things individually and then stir them into the couscous. So the zucchini idea... I don't love zucchini. I don't even know why I bought them, but I watched Stanley Tucci's Italy show and he said the greatest pasta that he ever had in his life was at this place where they kind of like fried the zucchini and stirred it into pasta. And I was thinking, well, if I really fry the dickens out of this zucchini, um, it's going to taste great. So I just got a big nonstick skillet. I poured in olive oil, almost like a layer of olive oil. Like I wasn't even looking. I mean, I wasn't measuring. And then I heated it up till it was super hot. And meanwhile, I sliced like two or three zucchinis into rings. And then I very, very carefully laid those rings into the hot oil, spread apart so they each got their own surface area and didn't add any salt because salt draws out the moisture. It would have made it soggy. So I just let them fry away. And then basically after a minute, they, they turned golden, beautiful, dark brown on one side. I flipped them over, let them get brown on the next side. And then I just lifted them with a fish spatula so the oil drained out into the couscous and laid, let it sit on top. 
And then I did it with another round of zucchini. And then I did it with um, the Jimmy Nardello peppers. Now, Jimmy Nardello peppers are these red frying peppers, which are... Um, people love them chefs love them food writers love them ben mims is actually the one who turned me on to them and so they sold them sold them at the store called cookbook and i bought a bunch of them and so i just sliced them into rings and about like three or four of them so i got like about let's say 20 or 30 little rings and i threw those into the skillet with the hot oil and fried those until they got blistered and red i mean dark brown and then i put those in the, the couscous thing and then i took an onion actually i already did i did this separately in a different pan because i was getting a little impatient I sliced the onion into uh what's the one like slices slices that's the word not rings and I fried that in olive oil again not with any salt at the beginning because you want color on it Um, and then a little salt at the end and I stirred that in and so basically the first round of flavoring the couscous was just fried vegetables how could how bad could that be to quote Ina Garten Um, and then I used a fork to work the vegetables into the couscous and that was step one but then I kind of looked at it and I was like okay what's missing we're missing texture we're missing acidity we're missing um, some color so or some like greenery Um, although I ended up I don't think I added anything green to it but what I did do was I toasted some almonds and again that's like if you have a dry skillet it's very simple just dump in some whole almonds like about like half a cup toast them until they're fragrant and take on a little color then chop them up and then put those in there. And then in terms of acidity, I remembered at this point that earlier this year, I think it was like in March or April, my neighbor, Tony, gave me a bunch of Meyer lemons, so many so that I didn't know what to do with them. And so I preserved them using a recipe from Nicole Rucker's book. And Nicole Rucker is one of my favorite pastry chefs, and she has a gorgeous cookbook called Dappled. And she has a recipe in there that's not for dessert, but just for preserved lemons. And the idea is basically you take whole lemons and shove them into a jar with salt and leave them. And I left them in my windowsill for a long time. And then I had them in the refrigerator for a couple months. So this couscous was the perfect opportunity to show off the lemons because what they are, they're basically citrusy, funky, umami-ish. Like they take on this like deep, deep complexity. So I pulled them out of the liquid I just cut them in half. And I think Nicole in the recipe says you can use the flesh along with the skin, but I mostly like the skin. I just cut cut everything into cubes, little cubes, stirred that into the couscous. And the final thing was I sprinkled on some Aleppo pepper because I like the kind of fruity heat of an Aleppo pepper. Um, And then I tasted, tasted, tasted. you got to taste your couscous. And I think I maybe added a splash of vinegar or a splash of lemon juice, but it tasted pretty phenomenal. I was also aware that I was going to make a salsa verde. And so I didn't want to make it too acidic because that, that element was really going to come from the salsa verde. So how did I make the salsa verde? And again, this is one of the last things I'm going to walk you through, but hopefully if you're listening this far, you're fascinated at how I made my dinner party. So the salsa verde is one of the best tricks you can have up, have up your sleeve because it's so simple and transforms anything from chicken to fish to scallops to you name it. It makes it better. So here's what I do. And there's a million different salsa verdes out there. But the one I do is basically in a, in a food processor, which makes this so easy. I put about like four to five fat cloves of garlic. You really want a punchy garlic flavor, maybe even six. Then I put about like six to eight anchovies because, again, you want a punchy, punchy flavor. And then I just grind those up together. So I pulse, pulse, pulse. And then to that, I tear off the tops of about three bunches of parsley. Now, you could be a finicky chef and 
pull the leaves off the parsley stems, but I don't got time for that. So I just twist off the top of the parsley and shove it in the food processor. And I grind that up with a little salt and the anchovies and the garlic until it just looks, it doesn't look great at that point. It's just going to look like flecks of green. You're going to see flecks of garlic. You're going to see flecks of anchovy. You're like, what is this? But then I add a little Dijon mustard, like a little spoonful. And I then juice in a couple of lemons. Remember those lemons? Let's start with like one or two lemons. And I spoon in about a tablespoon or two of capers. And then I put the lid back on, and while pulsing, I drizzle in olive oil. And you've got to be generous with your olive oil here because this is the sauce that's going to feed, in this case, eight people. So, you know, the Dijon, if you do like a tablespoon or more of Dijon, it will help the sauce emulsify. But it's okay in this case with salsa verde, as far as I'm concerned. It can, it can be a broken sauce because what you're basically doing is you're basically making this super flavorful green mixture of, of capers and garlic and anchovies and the and the parsley is just sort of to balance things out and then the olive oil is what stretches it out so you know if I tell you that I used half a cup that would be a lie I think it was more like three quarters a cup to a cup of olive oil but keep in mind I knew that I was serving eight people so I wanted there to be a lot of salsa verde and in fact when I finished it let's say I did three quarters a cup of salt of olive oil I was able to fill two small bowls which I put on the table which brings us to the table. So setting the table. That's my favorite, favorite part of a dinner party is setting the table. I love it, love it, love it. Craig, uh, my husband, says I do it way too early, but he doesn't get it because part of the fun of a dinner party is just that sense of anticipation. So when I set the table, I obviously clean the table first. I get the eight chairs around the table. We have a lot of debate in our house about the runner versus the linen tablecloth that I bought a long time ago that I love because Craig thinks that the runner makes it look more casual because it exposes the wood and I feel like the tablecloth makes it more festive but because I was serving sort of a casual dinner and I didn't feel like we needed the formality I left the runner on the table then I put down the eight plates and my plan at this dinner was to serve it family style so um, I've left big you know hearth ceramic plates uh, on the table and then I got these funky napkins from Fish's Eddie in New York which I sat down put out all the forks and knives put out all the water glasses I always take two bottles and fill them with water and I put them in the fridge for later in the night when people are thirsty I just put those on the table Um, what else I put out the wine glasses and then we vacuum a bit we you know tidy up the couch we fluff the pillows we light some candles Um, and I'm actually kind of conflating two moments of this dinner party because the truth is I set the table probably before I iced the cake or after I iced the cake. So more like four o'clock, five o'clock. And then in terms of vacuuming and last minute touches and lighting the candles, that was more like seven o'clock. And at 7.15, I put the chickens in the oven because, um... I basically was planning for them to take an hour and people were coming at 7.30. So I figured if I put them in at 7.15, they'd be done at 8.15 and uh, and then we could let them rest till 8.30. So I, I wanted the cocktail hour with the cheese and stuff to last about an hour, especially because... Craig wanted to make a cocktail and you know if you're if you're the cook in the family and your partner feels left out there's nothing better than to encourage them to take up some mixology so Craig chose the cocktail for this evening and he chose one called the Newark which had apple brandy sweet vermouth fernet bronca and maraschino liqueur and he actually did a sample run of it earlier in the night and I found it a little too bitter 
personally, but it was a good aperitif in the sense that like it did open up the palate because it was so bitter, like sort of like a Negroni or something like that. Um, so he was busy in the kitchen making that. And when everyone got here, I did not have the cheese and olives set out. Now, psychologically, why did I not have it set out? Because I needed there to be a moment of food being served so that the guests wouldn't get antsy about the chicken. If the cheese and crackers and the olives had already been set out, they would have been like felt like almost like an afterthought while they waited and waited for the dinner to be ready. So this might be very finicky and specific, but once everybody was seated, once Craig gave everybody their cocktail, and once everyone chatted a little bit, I made a point, this was about like 7.45 when the chicken was still cooking, to come out with a cheese plate, which I had um, three cheeses that I bought at Gelson's. Usually I go somewhere nicer, but Gelson's has good cheese. And I got a goat cheese from France. Uh, I called, I think it was called a Boucheron. I got a... Um, Oh, what was it? Oh, I got, uh, oh, it's like this really nice one, Mount Tam cheese from Cowgirl Creamery, which was a cow's milk cheese. And then I got a Gouda, kind of a hard cheese. So the way you can do a cheese plate is either like cow milk, sorry, cow, goat, sheep, and get three different kinds that way. Or you could do hard, soft, you know, medium textured. So I kind of played with both. And I don't overdo my cheese plate. I know Ina lays down fig leaves and lemon leaves. Mine, mine is just like this kind of clay board, this kind of rough textured that I got at the Silver Lake Cheese Shop, which doesn't exist anymore. And you put your cheeses on that. And I usually I have these cute little Lagoule cheese knives, which I put on there. And then I have a little basket in which I put those fancy crackers uh what are they called like rainforest crisps where it has like figs and olives or whatever so I, I get two boxes of those and put those in the little basket and I brought that to the table and I brought a little bowl of olives that I got and then everyone started cutting in and it was interactive and people felt stimulated and so nobody was that antsy by the time they dug into the cheese and olives for the chicken which was great because at eight fifteen, I took the chicken out of the oven and um, I let it rest. Now, this was the moment, and I haven't mentioned this yet, that I decided to, well, not decided, I, I set forth to cook something for my vegetarian friend, Jonathan, which was I bought a cauliflower. And basically, to make a cauliflower steak, it's pretty simple. You just take a sharp knife, you cut down, you put the bottom of the cauliflower down on the cutting board, you slice down, and like you want it like a two, or basically like a one-inch wide cauliflower steak so I cut down I then I did like a straight down through the root basically the root is what um, holds it all together so I got about like two thick cauliflower steaks and then a bunch of crumbles and then in that same skillet where I fried everything which I had washed and cleaned because I washed and cleaned everything before everyone came over you don't want a pile of dishes in the sink before everyone gets there um in that large nonstick skillet I glugged in more olive oil and then I heated it up till it's very hot and I when I added the cauliflower it sizzled which is how you know you're doing it right and I let it you know basically fry on that side until it got deep 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 golden 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 brown then I flipped it over and finished on the other side and sprinkled it with some salt and some pepper and then just cook 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 until a knife went through easily and then I just lifted it up and I put it on a little platter for Jonathan um, with a little lemon wedge on it so it looked pretty because when I set that aside I chopped up the chickens and to cut up the chickens you're going to want to watch the YouTube tutorial for that Um, but basically I cut off the wings first then I cut off the legs and thighs and then I cut the breast in half and then I cut each half of the breast in half again so I think that's like 
like, wait, two wings, two legs, two thighs, um, and then four pieces of, ch- of breast. So it's like 10 pieces of chicken per chicken. And I put all of that on a big, big platter. And um, I also put some lemon wedges on the platter. And if I had more time, I would probably would have sprinkled it with parsley. And that was basically it. I called everybody to the table. And I... And now I told them what everything was. You know, and people get excited. They want to hear the story behind the food. So I said, this is spicy spatchcock chicken with um, my f- famous couscous salad and s- salsa verde with garlic and anchovies. And basically, I think family style for a group of eight is great because everybody passes the, the platter around and everybody's excited and people are pulling chicken off it. And someone's like, hey, can you pass the salsa verde? And somebody's like, ooh, Jonathan, what are you eating? And, and so it was great. And, and, you know, that's the moment of the dinner where you truly can relax. Every, everything has, has been cooked. Everything is set out. Everyone seems happy. They're chatting. They're eating. Wine is flowing. Um, you, I do keep my eye on the water glasses to make sure everyone's got water. And if they don't, that's when I go into the fridge and pull out those two bottles of water. And then basically people will offer to help you clear the table. I usually tell them not to because not because I don't want help, but because I collect really nice dishes, not nice dishes, just quirky dishes from Etsy. And I'm always nervous that they're going to break them on the way to the kitchen. I know I'm neurotic. I need to go on my own podcast, but we usually bring the dishes to the sink, pile them up, and then we take like a 10-minute break before dessert. And because it was birthday time, I put three candles in the birthday cake and came out singing happy birthday with the candles aglow. And everybody sang along. And then I got some big plates because Ina Garten, again, Ina's my, my inspiration, likes to serve dessert on big plates. So I got these kind of cute flowery plates that I had. And I sliced big slices of cake. Again, this is not a diet diet dinner this is a celebration dinner so big pieces of cake for everybody and then very discreetly I like to see who eats it really fast and then say would you like another one because often people do if you don't make a big stink about it and then after that I like to have everybody go back to the couch area where that's my favorite part also of the night is once you've had all this food you've done all the work everybody's well fed everybody's a little intoxicated you go back to this area and you just kind of let you know relax and just chit chat and listen to the music which is its own thing by the way which Craig likes to play records on our record player which sets another lovely tone which maybe he'll come on sometime to talk about that and then people start to drift away and say okay I got to go home I have to feed the dog blah 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 and then everybody leaves and that's the moment where I do not do the dishes because after all of that cooking and dishes doing I don't mind waking up the next day to a big stack of dishes in the sink. I know some people dread that. And if you're one of those people, great. Finish up your night by cleaning. But I like to just revel in that feeling of having fed everybody and just feeling full and happy with all this food that I took so much care to make. Um, And you'll start getting texts the next day thanking you and you'll have all the pictures to post and it's just a, a lovely way to spend your time. And so I can imagine some people heard all of this and they were like, wow, I could never. But if you're somebody who heard all of this and, and feels like, wow, I'd love to do that someday, don't be afraid because the only way to get into the rhythm of doing dinner parties is to throw dinner parties. And as COVID's starting to wind down, which I just heard on the on NPR, which they expect the cases to really start dropping by March, start throwing some dinner parties again. Invite some people over who you think are healthy and vaccinated and um, have fun. So I hope this was helpful and um, have a great dinner party when you finally throw one and tag me in your pictures. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Lunch Therapy, please be sure to leave a comment or a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us. And if you want to see pictures from this dinner party, be sure to follow me on Substack, Amateur Gourmet Newsletter under Substack. All right, we'll see you back here next week.